0: Well, I would invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes 11. We're going to look at the first six verses this morning. We're drawing near to the end of our study here of Ecclesiastes. And I believe we'll be dipping into the New Testament since we have spent a bit bit of time here in the Old Testament over the past several months. But we've got a couple of more weeks to go after this one. so. As we uh, tread through Ecclesiastes and learn the lessons that it has for us, may the Lord grant us grace to grasp what is being said here and, and may he write his eternal truths upon our hearts. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Or you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Well, Solomon here points us to the fact that life is full of uncertainties and we are ignorant. And I don't mean that to be insulting, but we don't know everything, and he actually tells us on three different occasions in this passage something that we do not know. And you see that here in uh, in verses 2, 5, and 6. In verse 2, he tells us that you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, if you can't agree with that, you haven't been uh, alive the last year and a half. I mean... In 2019, we were enjoying a good academy. We had a church plant on the verge of beginning worship services over in Ocean Springs. Uh, this church was experiencing the beginning of a growth spurt, and then 2020 hit. Our friend and church planner Philip Seely died of cancer. The pandemic broke out, and everyone went into quarantine for a, a few weeks. George Floyd was killed. Riots broke out throughout the country. We had numerous hurricanes along the Gulf Coast and elsewhere. And I could go on. But in 2019, who would have predicted 2020? We indeed do not know what disaster may happen on Earth. I think the majority of people have positive thoughts about the future, unless you're Eeyore in um, Winnie the Pooh who was very negative, if you don't know Eeyore. But most people don't think, well, something really bad is probably going to happen to me this year. I mean, when you were making your resolutions in January, at the beginning of January, end of December, you probably weren't planning those around some major illness or injury or death. You think positively, right? Most of us do, at least. But we don't know, do we? We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what disaster may happen on earth or in our lives. We don't know what's coming down the pike. So that's the first thing that Solomon points to us points out to us that we do not know. The second comes in verse 5. As you do not know the way of the spirit how uh, sorry as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now we know a little bit more than Solomon did about you know, the whole process of conception and the growth of the zygote and fertilization and all that that happens when a, when a child is conceived and grows in the womb of, a, of its mother. We know the biology in our day of how the single cells multiply and divide, and, and the, the little person grows and grows. But when does the soul or the spirit come into the human, and how does that happen? I mean, one might think about brain development and that sort of thing, but it's really quite amazing to think about this little group of cells becoming a human being with thoughts and with a personality and with a, a spirit soul and, and all the potential in the world. It really is mysterious. And you think about in Solomon's day how much more mysterious that would have been to him. And that's why he says, you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones of the woman. The same way you don't know the work of God who makes everything. See, we do not know what God is up to often. Now the Bible tells us in general terms you know what the Lord is up to. We know the ultimate end of things. We know some of the purposes that he has for the world and for his people. The the scriptures are clear about that. But often we don't know what God is up to. Things seem to be going in the opposite direction of the way that we think God would want them to go. I mean, we look around us at all the negative things that have happened in 2020, but we can point to some good things that have come out of the bad things, and that is what Solomon's talking about, the work of God. You, you wouldn't have predicted it. But we only know what's revealed to us, but even so, the details can be hazy. Many of you know my, my brother has cancer, and I don't know what God's doing there. I mean, he's doing very well, and he's uh, got a great... Uh, report this past week from an MRI I know from scriptures certain things that the Lord is probably doing in his life he's a believer and he uh, is growing in his faith he's trusting the Lord through this circumstance he's had opportunities to share his faith with others through through all of this and you know the Lord has purposes in the suffering that we all uh, go through I found out this week that one of my cousins has cancer he's only 50, 51 years old, and he's going to be having surgery here in a couple of weeks. I'm not sure what God's doing there. I mean, I know those general things that I know about my brother, but what is God doing in that person's life or anyone's life? We don't know how everything's going to play out in the future, but God has a plan and a purpose behind it all. That's what Solomon is pointing to, but we really don't know. And sometimes we can assume things... And we can wonder and and think that things are going in the wrong way, but that's exactly the way God wants them to go because he has a greater purpose than we could have ever imagined. The classic example, of course, is Joseph. You know, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ended up in prison being falsely accused, and then all of a sudden he's second in command in Egypt. And he saves his family and saves the people of God. I'm sure when he was being forgotten in prison, he had no clue that in in some relatively short time, that he would be in a place of almost ultimate power in Egypt. But it was all God. He didn't know what God was doing. And the same is true of us. And then verse 6, the third place, he tells us that we don't know something. Verse 6 says, You do not know which will prosper. He's saying, do some things. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We cannot... Be sure that any one course of action will cause us to prosper 100% of the time. You know, even a sure thing is not a sure thing. Go back to the first thing we don't know. You know, you might have a sure thing and then disaster hits. We don't know. Well, this is life under the sun. This is what Solomon's been pointing us to. Life under the sun. He, he especially wants us to to look at life under the sun with all of its problems and and how things don't work out like we think they should, how there is injustice. He is sticking our nose in the mess of life and wanting us to take a big whiff of the stench so that we can appreciate we can appreciate God. Well, life under the sun can be depressing if you live it without reference to God. Life can be cruel and out of control. Life can be cut short for no reason, it seems like. And when we think about it, there is very little over which we have control in our lives. And the control we think we have is often just an illusion that we've created. And all of this can be depressing and paralyzing. Life lived without reference to God is just the luck of the draw, and in the end it's meaningless, pointless. I've had someone tell me, you know, we're just food for worms. That's a, that's a dreadful outlook on life. I was eating out the other night, and two gentlemen were near Harrison and myself, and they obviously were had had a conversation at their table, and one of them was saying he didn't like all that talk of religion. They were obviously talking about religion at their table. Um, And he thought it was arrogant to think that God spoke to one group of people over another. And I wanted to say, well, you're doing the very thing that you're accusing others of doing. You're being arrogant and criticizing other people and their viewpoint on things, and you're dismissing thousands of years of church history. I wanted to say, "Hi, I'm Reverend Horn," (laughs) and you're offending me. (laughs) Well, he went on to say, as the conversation went on, "All that matters is whether or not something made money." You know, the bottom line was it's all about money, and I was just thought that was just really sad and shallow. See that's life under the sun without reference to God. It, it's, you know, you you accumulate things and then you die and someone else gets them. That's what Solomon says, that's vanity. So Solomon wants us to look at that and say, ugh, that's terrible. He wants us to point back to God, he wants to point us back to God, and as we think about it from our perspective on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus' coming, uh, we have more revealed to us, more hope than even Solomon had. Solomon put his hope in the Lord, obviously, but we have even more calls because Jesus has come and he has died and he has given us more words. Three things that we can look at as we face this life of uncertainty we can look to, as Christians, first of all, God's care for us. God cares for His people. That's what we've been singing about. That's what we've been praying about this morning. You know, we know Romans eight twenty eight promises that all things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Wonderful verse, wonderful promise. Everything, even the bad stuff, God is using For his glory and our good. And he goes on to say there, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, we know that the Lord loves us because he's demonstrated it in sending his son to die for us so that we might be saved. Whether our life is easy or hard or long or short, God cares for us. And everything is happening for our good and his glory. And he, he is for us. He is for us. And nothing can separate us from his love, Paul goes on to say. So we have this promise of God's care as we face this uncertain life. We know God cares for us, even though I don't know what disasters may happen? God knows. God knows and he's got me in his hand. And no matter what happens to me, I know that he loves me and cares for me and he's got a purpose in all that happens to me. If you don't know God, you don't have that assurance. Quite the opposite. And the second thing that we can think about here in reference to not our, our lack of certainty in life is our vocation. Our vocation. This is what Solomon's going to get at, and I'll flesh this out a little bit more in a minute. But God has given us a purpose. Everybody who is his child has a purpose in life. You're not just along for the ride. You're a part of the body of Christ, and he's given everyone gifts and abilities, circumstances and opportunities to serve him and to serve others. Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes on and he describes all the different types of gifts. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list there in Romans 12, but the point is that we have a purpose, we have gifts to use we have something we should be doing, and Solomon is very interested in getting us moving and active in this uncertain life we 'll come to that more in a moment, but third thing I wanted to give you some perspective on in this uncertain life is that we do have a future hope. you know this life is not all there is for the believer and when Jeremiah prophesied to the exiles, they were They had been banished from their country by the Babylonians and and they were there for 70 years. And Jeremiah prophesied to them and he says, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If we're believers, we've been grafted into that body that body of folk who Jesus died for, who the Lord plans to give welfare, not evil, but a future and a hope. We have the promise of the new heavens and new earth and to be with the Lord in eternity, forever and ever, out of, the, out of the, even the presence of sin. So we've got a future hope. So as we look at this life filled with uncertainty, We need to be reminded that, yes, God cares for us in the here and now. He's given us something to do, a purpose, and a future hope that we will be with him forever. So with that in mind, how should we look at this passage from Solomon? And Let's just run through it real quick. Even though life is filled with uncertainty, we are to act with faith and wisdom. Act with, That's what Solomon is getting at here, to act with faith and wisdom, to trust the Lord, and to use wisdom. There's three sections here. Uh, verses 1 through 2 is the first section, verses 3 through 5, the second section, and then verse 6. Let's just break them down real quick. Uh, first, he says, "'Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth.'" So we can take this literally or figuratively. I, I've read several commenta- commentaries on this, these particular verses. This is the hardest verse, especially verse 1, is the hardest one to interpret specifically. Uh, I've counted five different interpretations. So I've grouped them, uh, two groups, literally and figuratively. Now if I took a loaf of bread and I walked out to the beach and I cast my bread upon the water... Um, literally, you know, what's going to happen is the bread's going to dissolve in the water and I'm not going to get any bread back. Um, Probably not even going to get that far because there's going to be like a thousand seagulls come (laughs) and attack me with the loaf of bread, as you know if you've ever gone out with a loaf of bread on the beach. So uh, that's one way to think about it, Literally. Um, one commentator from the 1800s he said this you could translate the word "bread to be bread grain," and he's said, "You know, on the banks of the Nile, you can throw bread out, and when the waters recede, it'll go into the, the marshy ground and it will ha- you can harvest it there. I find that a bit of a stretch um, for for this passage, but but there, so there you go. The most bizarre uh, one was that this was referring to beer production and consumption in perilous times. I don't know how they got to that one, but you know, bread, yeast, and brewing, that might be attractive to some of you. I think he's being more figurative here, though. Um, firstly, uh, there's a traditional way that people have looked at this, it started with one of the church fathers, Jerome. And he said this is referring to alms giving. Um, giving alms will eventually be rewarded. And, and this is, of course, is equivalent to some of the words of Jesus: give and it will be given unto you. Uh, you know, in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Repeatedly, Jesus said these types of statements. The measure you give, it will be given back to you. I don't think that's what this is referring to because it doesn't say anything about alms here and and none of the commentaries really bought into that idea because alms is not mentioned, not only not mentioned here specifically, it's not mentioned in the book of, of Ecclesiastes at all. But I think the most popular view is that this is referring to sending goods across the sea. Uh, using a figure of speech, you know, send your bread across the waters. The, the word cast can be send. You know, make a venture. Uh, send your goods out. Export, import, and do, uh, do business. And you will get a return on your investment. And that seems to be the most popular uh, of the interpretations. I don't think it matters because I think what the point is here is that Solomon is telling us to act, to do something, to step out in faith, to trust the Lord. And he wants us to, to do it, uh, in verse 2, uh, in a diversity of ways. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, diversify. That's the wise way to do things. Be planning for other contingencies. So he's just asking us to act with wisdom. Well, the second section, where verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Thank you, Captain Obvious. I mean, he's talking about certain laws and and guidance uh, to give us through life, you know, there are certain things that are true. You know, the water cycle, that's what he's referring to, first of all. The clouds full of rain, it rains, the water falls to the earth, and then it eventually gets to the rivers or whatever, and it evaporates and it becomes clouds again, and the whole cycle goes round and round. And you can depend upon that. It's the way the world works. And if a tree falls, that's gravity, maybe some other of Newton's laws, Uh, For you scientists out there who know more about it than I do, you can depend upon it. If a tree falls in a certain spot, that's where it's going to be. And it's common sense. But what he's telling us there is, yes, there are certain laws and rules that the world operates under, yet if you're looking for the perfect moment to act, you'll never get there. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. Yes, you can, can, as a farmer, look at the weather report. But if you're just looking for the absolute perfect moment to to reap or to sow, you might not ever get to that perfect moment. So he's just saying, look, don't be paralyzed by thinking you have to have the perfect, everything perfectly lined up before you act. Go ahead, do it. Step out in faith. I'm thinking about our vocation. You think about what the Lord has gifted you with. We can sit there and wait and wait and wait until the perfect moment to act, the perfect moment to share Christ with that coworker, the perfect moment to, to reach out to someone, but it will never come. The important thing is to go, do it, act, step out there on faith. The perfect moment never arrives. And you don't know what God is doing. See, that's what he says that in reference to. God will act through imperfections. God acts in times when there's trouble and difficulty. He overcomes those things and works out his own purposes. So don't wait until the perfect moment. Then thirdly, verse 6, "...in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good." In other words, he's saying, cover all your bases, be thorough." Be diligent. You know, is it better to sow your seed in the morning or in the evening? Well, do both, and then, you know, perhaps they both will work out well. You don't know which will prosper, this or that. So try them both. Try anything. Cover all your bases. Be thorough. Be diligent. Now, when we think about our own vocation, um, you know these are these all apply here. How, how would the Lord? What would the Lord have you do? Well, start with the obvious. You know, you can look at the Bible and you can see that there are commands there for you to to obey. Uh, there there are requirements that that are true for everybody, and we just seek to put those into practice. But what about your particular situation, your particular gifts and calling? You know, that's one of the great things of the Reformation. It's not just preachers and priests and religious uh, church, church workers that have a calling in life. Everyone has a calling in life. That's what Romans 12 said. Everybody's got a gift in the body of Christ. So when you think about how do I use that gift? How do I, how do I know what it is and how do I use it? Well three things. Consult, well, consult the Lord. Pray about it. Read scripture. And see what the scriptures tell you about it. Now, the scriptures not going to tell you specifically, you know, Tim, you've got this gift. It doesn't say that there. But it gives us general principles and guidance that we can know and, and figure it out. And then ask others within the body of Christ. That's a big part of calling. Other people see that you have abilities and gifts in certain areas. That goes a long way towards our calling. We're going through officer training right now and we've nominated men to be deacons and elders because people in the church recognize that that person might be a good deacon or elder. They see something in those men that that makes them believe that they could do that job. So that's how we can make those decisions, but once we have, okay, I want to do this for the Lord, the Lord is calling me to do this or that or the other, well, let's just do it. Get out there and do it. Step out on faith. Act. Don't just sit on the sidelines thinking about your gift. Put it into practice. Don't wait for the perfect moment. Go now. Do it wisely. You know, think it through a little bit, but not so much that you're inactive. That's what Solomon is telling us here. Now, many of you know that we went to England as missionaries, and I, I mean, we were missionaries, yeah, I guess, but, you know, I just did what I did in the States, just happened to do it in England, so I never liked to call myself a missionary, and I think it was kind of offensive to the English people that they they would think, oh, we don't need missionaries, you know, we're a Christian nation, but they did need missionaries. So I was working at First Pres Jackson on staff there as one of their ministers, and, of course, Reformed Theological is in Clinton, right there next to Jackson and the area. And one of the professors, Duncan Rankin, whom some of you know, called me and said, Tim, i got a guy coming from England, and I think you'd like to hear what he has to say. And in my mind I was going, I don't have any interest whatsoever in what he has to say. I don't know, you know, why you would think I would have interest in this. But... I respect Duncan, and I didn't want to say that to him, of course. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come to the meeting, thinking I probably won't come to the meeting. But a couple of weeks passed, and the meeting came around, and I thought, well, I'll go to the meeting, and you know, I can go to the bookstore after and do some shopping. Well, I went to this meeting, and I had just gone through some training where I did gifts assessment and personality assessments and all these thinking about ministry and a little workshop I went to. and So I had all this fresh in my mind. And uh, my friend David Cross, who wasn't my friend then, I'd never met him before, but he said, here's what we're looking for. And he went down my list, you know, point by point of what I was like. And it seemed in my mind that I was the perfect fit for this thing that I wasn't at all interested in. And so I made the choice, I almost said mistake, It was not a mistake, but it was a choice to go and and ask, you know, talk to him afterwards and say, yeah, this sounds interesting. And, you know, he was actually coming to First Press the next day to to, uh, give a report at the prayer meeting. So we arranged to have another meeting uh, on the next day in the afternoon. And he came by and we chatted for a while. And uh, and I remember he wanted to take a picture of Sarah and, and our children and Sarah had no idea that any of this was happening. And so I went to her. She was there with the children. We were having a family night supper. And and I said, this guy's going to come take our picture. I'll explain it later. (laughs) Well, I think David and Barbara took that picture and put it on their fridge and started praying for us to come to England. Because every sermon and every article I read from that place on, from that time on, was about... Reaching the nations, you know, missions. And, and I never had interest in missions before. So the Lord was making it clear. He showed me that, yes, I have the ability to do these things. I'm a good fit to do those things. I obviously had the training to go and preach and be the pastor of a church. Um, so I had the ability and I had the availability My mother had died of cancer just shortly before that. And if she had still been going through that, I wouldn't have left the country. But I kind of was free to do anything at that point. And so the circumstances all came together. And we stepped out on faith. We did something. Was I the only person that could plant a church in England? No, because they've planted many since then. But that's what the Lord was calling us to do. And we we did something. And in spite of uh, ourselves, the Lord did something. He built his church. A church was planted. Uh, And then now there's four churches where there were no churches in that little area around Cheltenham and Gloucester. So stepping out in faith, just saying, the Lord's going to take care of us, the Lord has given us certain gifts, and now we're going to go use those gifts. We can go and fill this slot. We're available and we did that, and the Lord used it greatly, and it was a blessing to us. So I want to encourage you with that story, not to just pat myself on the back or anything like that, because the Lord really did use us in spite of me. Uh, the Lord brought people into the church who were great leaders and and strong, faithful believers, and so the church was established in a few years, in seven years. So. We rejoice in God's work, but when we make ourselves available to just say, okay, Lord, what would you have me do? You know, what can I do? Where can I serve? How can you use me? And then we act on it. The Lord will do things. The Lord will build his church. The Lord will use you and cause you to grow in ways you never imagined. And I'll leave you with this, Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not from men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I encourage you all to serve the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that encourages us. Lord, you thank you that you, you don't need us, but you love us, you've embraced us, brought us into your family, you've given us gifts so that we can serve you and serve others and and that you can use those gifts to not only do something great in the world but you can do something great in us thank you lord for showing us attention and knowing us intimately even though we don't deserve it and lord i pray that you would raise up here in this body people to serve you with their gifts to reach their full potential of service to you and to others Help us all, Lord, to shake off our lethargy and our laziness, our lack of faith. Help us, Lord, to have a clear view of the ultimate goal, not just to make money, not just to have as much pleasure in this life and security in this life, but to really invest in the kingdom that will last forever, your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.